In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Bible study tonight, Psalm 83. Each psalm has a title, and the title of this psalm is A Song, A Psalm of Asaph, which means the author is Asaph, and Asaph was a great singer and musician during the time of David and Solomon, his son. But as we read in First Chronicles chapter 25 and verse 1, Asaph was a prophet in his musical composition. So many psalms that he wrote actually included prophecies. This Psalm 83 is the last of the psalms that carry the name of Asaph. And in spite the fact that no records of the event of this psalm, we don't have any record of the event of this psalm, but it is possible that the psalm refers to some episode in Jewish history. This psalm, Asaph was pleading with God to deliver them, the, the Jewish nation, from the conspiracy of many countries around them. That's why scholars start to speculate about the occasion in which this psalm was written. Some commentators think that the psalm refers to the coalition against Jehoshaphat which we read it in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Some said this psalm is related to the events described in 1 Maccabees chapter 5 because these enemies in Maccabees were provoked by the success of Judas in restoring the temple. Others refer the psalm to the Persian period and connected with the opposition to rebuilding of the city, as we read in Nehemiah chapter 4, where the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites are mentioned among the enemies of Judah. Others see the collection of many enemies against Israel not referring to a specific occasion, but referring to the constant danger that Israel lived under. But in a prophetic way, this psalm applied to the enemies of the church and all the anti-Christian powers that are opposing to God and to the Christian teaching that are against Christ and his church. So the psalmist prays in hope that all enemies' plans and conspiracies will be thrown and defeated, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. The psalm starts in a form of collective lamentation, but as usual with any psalm, it ends with praise and glorification and thanksgiving to God for his work with his people especially during the time of affliction 
and how God rescued his people. It is a prayer that although enemies from every side should conspire to destroy us, but God would block and prevent their plans and make their evil an opportunity to reveal his own sovereignty, his own authority, his own omnipotence. And although the psalm bears a type of lamentation, but it is called in the title a song, because at the end he knows that God will rescue his people and will deliver them. This psalm actually is 18 verses. From verse 1 to 8, the plans of the wicked people. From verse 9 to 15, and earnest plea for the overthrow of the enemy. Last three verses from 16 to 18, this was be done for the glory of God. So overthrowing of the enemy will be done for the glory of God. So let's start from verse 1. Verse 1, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O God. So Asaph is saying to God, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. So from verse 1 to 4, there is an urgent prayer that God will come to rescue his people whom their enemies are conspiring to destroy and wipe them out. So Asaph prayed this psalm in a time of national crisis. Enemies had come against Israel who were set on their national destructions. They want to destroy Israel completely. And if God were to keep silent or hold his peace or be still on behalf of Israel, then Israel would be destroyed. That's why he told him, God, do not be silent. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still. In his perception, God seems to be indifferent to the danger of his people. But Asaph is praying that God has to speak a word, only a word, and their plans will be, the plans of the enemies, will be utterly stopped and disturbed. Many times for us, God seems as if he is silent and not caring for the enemies that are stirred up against us. And we, the believers, stand confused. But if God seems as if he's silent, it is to teach us not to be silent ourselves, but to pray to him and ask God to arise. Do you remember when the disciples were in the boat with the Lord Jesus Christ and he was asleep at the end of the boat? They actually start to wake him up and crying and saying, Arise, rebuke the wind, that there would be a great calm. So God wants us to pray diligently and tell him, God, arise, rebuke our enemies, 
that there would be a great calm. Verse 2, For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. So, Asaph asked God to consider this crisis and to regard the enemies of Israel as his own enemies, as those who hated him. Do you remember when the Lord appeared to St. Paul before his conversion? He did not tell him, why do you persecute my children? He told him, why do you persecute me? So, the enemies of the church are not against us, but they are against God. They don't hate us, they do hate God. So, Asaph is confident that if God actually considered these enemies his own enemies, and these enemies hate him, he would act on behalf of Israel. That's why he told him, Behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. So, the tumult here means the enemies come like the rolling waves of the sea. They are excited, aroused, and moving in a wild, furious, rebellious manner, rushing on the accomplishment of their plans to destroy Israel completely. They are like hungry wolves, intending to devour the people of God, who people of God like flock of sheep. That's why he said to the apostles, I will send you like sheep among wolves. They have become proud, bold, confident of success. As he said in verse 2, they have lifted up the head, lifted up the head. Usually the head is bowed down in sorrow and trouble, and pride lifts the head up. Boldness, confidence, wickedness are indicated by its being thus lifted up. So they are arrogant and put themselves above the people of God. But according to the Latin translation, the Vulgata, it is not for they have, they have lifted up their head, but it is they have lifted up the head, the head. And in Arabic also it is the head, قَدْ رَفْعُ الرَّأْسِ Not قَدْ رَفْعُ رَأْسَهُمْ The head. And St. Augustine noticed that the psalmist did not say they raised their heads but said they raised the head. As though the enemies have reached the point when they all gather together around one head. And who is this the head? The head is the head of, of Satan. It is the head of the Antichrist. As St. Paul described him, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that's worship so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So, this psalm is a cry coming from the heart of the Holy Church. The Holy Church cries out when the Antichrist comes, 
who in his pride and haughtiness sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And at that time, all the wicked people will gather together under the leadership of the Antichrist to oppose the church. And then the church will plead with God not to remain silent. As the affliction has reached its maximum, and the Antichrist assumes that no God could stand before him. St. Jerome said, The heretics talk while the church people hold their peace. They are in tumult, the heretics, while the believers keep silent. The heretics blaspheme while the believers are not offended. As the psalmist said, they are in tumult. They produce only noise, confusion, and division. Those who hate God have raised the head. The heretics are a great multitude, while the believers are few. As the Lord said, don't fear little flock. Verse 3, they have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. So, as the Lord's enemy gather together against the believers, they rely on deception and craftiness in planning their plots. And the believer seek from God to support and to protect them from the conspiracy of the enemies. St. Augustine commented on the word the have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together, consulted together. St. Augustine said, they make more noise than a talk or conversation. When they consult together, they just make a noise, not a rational talk or conversation. The enemies oppose the church by spirit of violence, noise, tumult, make plans without understanding nor prudence or rational debate. They just want to attack the church and destroy the church. I want you to notice how Asaph described the people of God. He said they consulted together against your sheltered one, your sheltered one. As if God take his children under his special protection, hide them in the hollow of his hand, They are sheltered under the shadow of his wings, in the secret of his presence. But when the people disobey God and reject his power and his promise to shelter them, at this time the enemies will take crafty counsel against the people of God to destroy them. St. Jerome says, they only Think of how to make men of your church stumble and to fall into their trap. That is their goal, the goal of the enemies of the church. How to make the people of God stumble and fall in their traps. Verse 4. They have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may remember no more. So these enemies were not content to invade their country, take their cities, 
rob them of their substance, carry them captives. No, they want to utterly destroy them. Let not the name of Israel be remembered anymore. Israel has had its battle and also Christianity has also been opposed and some have sought to completely cut Christian off. For example, the Roman Emperor Diocletian from 284 to 305, he boasted that he had destroyed Christianity and he thought that he defeated Christianity and he ordered a medal to be made with this inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. But this desperate and dreadful plan did not take effect. Where is Diocletian now? And where is the Christianity? Actually, the nations that are mentioned in this psalm opposing Israel, most of them are now do not exist and they don't have a name. Or at least they did not have a name in the world for so many years, hundreds of years. Verse 5, For they have consulted together with one consent, they form a confederacy against you. So Asaph emphasizing in verse 5 that these enemies were not only against Israel, but against the Lord himself, the God of the believers. These wicked men are flindery to one another. They are united in their counsel against the people of God and against God's interest. They have consulted together. At the time of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, Pilate and Herod were enemies. But when Pilate sent Jesus to be tried before or in front of Herod, they became friends again. So Herod and Pilate became friends against Christ. They had one desire and one purpose, to oppose and persecute the church and the people of God. They formed a confederacy against you. They entered into a covenant against God. And according to St. Augustine, the evil adversaries against the Church of God form a confederacy among themselves to become stronger. See now how the atheist, the agnostic, people who support sexual immorality, see how all of them united together against Christianity and the principles of Christianity. They bear the spirit of unity, but in evil. And St. Jerome says, how miserable, how miserable creatures we are, the believers, the people of God. When we cannot unite together the way the evildoers unite together against the church. Then from verse 6 until verse 9, he mentioned some nations and some names. The tent of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gibal, Amun and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot, Silah. So the psalmist mentions here the names of the nation 
the adversary of the again is the church and according to Saint Jerome they are 11 if you count them Edom, Ishmaelite, Moab, Hagrites, Gibal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, the inhabitant of Tyre, Assyria and the children of Lot. So 11. So Saint Jerome they being 11 means they are unable to reach the number of perfection which is 12 because 12 is the trinity 3 by 4 in the four uh, corners of the earth so they are only 11 they did not reach the perfect number 12 which is the preaching of the holy trinity in the whole earth both saint augustine and saint jerome believe that the name of each of these nations refer to its nature and in the listing of these enemies the psalmists seem to follow geographical order so if that's israel he started by the south nations south to israel then east to israel then west to israel then north to israel so these 11 nations surround israel from every direction and he started by the south, east, west, then the north. First one is Edom, the tent of Edom. Edom is Isu. So they are the children of Isu. And Edom was always, always among the bitterest of Israel's enemies. And naturally, he took a part in almost every combination that was made against Israel. Sometimes they subjugated, as we read in 2 Samuel 8, 14, 1 King 11, 15, and 16. But they continue the hostility during the whole period of the Israelite and the Jewish history. Edom means earthly. Even in Arabic, Adim means the, the earth. And you know the Arabic and Hebrew are close to each other and he said the tents of Edom tent is the right expression because the Edomites did not live in houses with self-established foundation but they lived in temporary tent the second group the Ishmaelite Ishmaelite are the children of Ishmael son of Abraham from Hagar and these were the chief inhabitant of northern Arabia. So the word Ishmaelite referred to the fact that they have the appearance of listeners. Ishmaelite, Ismail, Isma means listener actually in Hebrew and in Arabic, listeners. So they have the appearance of listeners, but actually they did not listen to God and they did not care much about God. But the Ishmaelites don't often appear among Israel enemies, like the Edomites, for example. The third group, Moab. You know, the two daughters of Lot, when they left Sodom and Gomorrah, they thought there were no men in the whole world. That's why they slept with their father. And the first daughter got pregnant and she had a son called Moab. 
And the second daughter got pregnant and she had a son called Bani Amu. Moab was a persistent enemy to Israel. And Moab means Mo means from Ab up the father. So Moab means from the father, means she got this child from her father. So Moab was born as a fruit of illegal and unholy relationship between Lot the father and one of his daughters. That's why she called him Moab. The fourth group are the Hagarites. Hagar is the mother of Ishmael. So the Hagarites are only mentioned here in 1 Chronicles 5 from 19 to 22. I told you he started by the south and the east. So the Hagarites dwelt to the east of the land of Israel. And they got their name from Hagar, the handmaid of Abraham. Verse 7, Gibal. Gibal, a part of Edom, east to the Dead Sea. And Gibal means fruitless, barren valley. Gibal, fruitless, barren valley. Ge means valley. And Bal means empty. So Gibal means empty valley. Barren valley, fruitless valley. Then he mentioned Amun. Amun, I told you, son of Lot from his daughter, Moab and Amun. The word Amun means son of my people. And Amun also was son of Lot by his youngest daughter. The Ammonites dwelt beyond the Jordan in the tract of the country between the streams of Jabok and Arnon. That's geography. So, Amun also means non-peaceful people or people of grief. Amun, like Moab, was persistent enemy of the Jewish people from their entrance into Palestine till the time of the Maccabees. Amun and Moab are currently Jordan. That's why the capital of Jordan, Amman, Amun. Then he mentioned in verse 7, after Gibal and Amun, Amalek. Amalek, very ancient people who inhabited the region of the south of Palestine, between Edomia and Egypt. Amalek disappeared from the history from the time of their destruction by the son of Simeon in the reign of Hezekiah, as we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 42 and 43. We did not hear about them after that. Philistia, Philistine, persistent enemy until now, like Edom and Moab and Amun. And it was natural that they should be engaged in such alliance of enemies against Israel. Then he mentioned with the inhabitant of Tyre. Tyre in early times was friendly to Israel and is not mentioned elsewhere to be 
enemy to Israel until the reign of Uzziah in Amos chapter 1 verse 9. Also we read in Ezekiel chapter 26 verse 2 that Tyre rejoiced when Jerusalem was destroyed. So why Tyre after they were friendly with Israel unite in this alliance is not known. But the purpose of mentioning this nation seemed to have been to combine as many as nations as possible against the Hebrew people. And as far as it could be done, so they took the four sides, south, east, west, north, all those that were adjacent to Israel, so that it might be surrounded by enemies, so its destruction might be certain. Then in verse 8, he said, Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. So Assyria supporting Moab and Ammon confirm this, that this psalm was written before Assyria became a great empire. St. Augustine said the word Assyria is most probably used as a symbol of the devil. The devil, the spirit who now work in the son of disobedience. Then the last group, they were unarmed to the children of Lot. So Assyria was unarmed, they have helped the children of Lot. So they were unarmed to help the children of Lot. Who are the children of Lot? The Moabites and the Ammonites appear to have been the chief leaders in this war and the leaders of this alliance. Children of Lot, this phrase, children of Lot, we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9 and 19. And on that these three verses, Psalm 83, verse 8, Deuteronomy 2, verse 9, Deuteronomy 2 verse 19, only this, except the book of Genesis, where the word the lot is mentioned. And it points to the unbrotherly character of hostility of these nations by recalling their common descent. They are children of Lot who came through unholy and illegal marriage. So if we look at the map at that day, we will note these nations literally surrounded Israel from everywhere. So clearly there was a good reason for Asaph to pray. And nowadays the people of God are surrounded by the enemies of God everywhere. Verse 8 ends with the word Silah. Silah means a pause for reflection. Pause for reflection. So there was a good reason for a pause when God's people was in such jibber. Verse 9. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisra, as with Japan at the brook Kishon. So from verse 9 to 12, Asaph offers a prayer for the destruction of the enemies as the Canaanites were destroyed. And he is referring to the time in the book of Judges, 
the time of Deborah and Barak and the defeat of the Midianites by Gideon. So he's referring to two times in the book of Judges. The defeat of Midianites by Gideon and the time of Deborah and Barak. So he's praying that their enemies will be overthrown and destroyed as the Midianites during the time of Gideon. And the reference here is the complete overthrow of the Midianites as happened in the book of Judges. And actually, God's victory over Midian through Gideon, you can read it in the book of Judges from chapter 6 to chapter 8. And the victory of Gideon over the confederated forces of the Midianites who actually united with Amalek and Arabians is referred by Isaiah as a typical victory. Typical victory. In Isaiah 9 verse 4, For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. So, Isaiah referring to Midian as the typical victory over the enemies of God. Also in Isaiah 10 verse 26, And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him, like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. That's why he said, deal with them as with Midian during the time of Gideon. Then he mentioned two names, as with Sisera, as with Jabin, as the brook Kishon. Who is Sisera? Sisera was the captain of the army of Jabin, the king of Canaan. So Sisera, the king of Canaan, is Jabin. And the captain of his army is Sisera. So he is saying, deal with my, our enemies and their kings and their rulers, as you dealt with Sisera and with King Jabin at Baruch Kishon. If you read the story in Judges chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, they were totally defeated by Dabura and Barak near Mount Tabur, near River Kishon. And Sisra, after having fled from the battle, was slain by a lady called Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. She told him, come and rest in my house, she deceived him. So he entered her house and after she gave him food and gave him milk to drink, so he slept. Then after he slept, she brought uh, a peg and actually digged it in his head and it went from one side to the other side. This was Sisra, the captain of the army of Canaan. So Asaph is praying that their leaders might be destroyed as they had been formerly. So when God wills it, a brook can be as deadly as the sea. So the brook of Kishon, where Canaan was defeated, so he is asking God to defeat their enemies as he defeated in the past 
the king of uh, Canaan and the captain of Canaan. Kishon was as terrible to Jabin as the Red Sea to Pharaoh. As Pharaoh was actually destroyed and his armies and the chariots in the Red Sea, the same happened to Jabin and Kishon. Verse 10, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. Endor, Endor is not mentioned in the book of Judges, but it is situated in the same valley of Tanach and Megiddo. And Tanach and Megiddo, you can read about them in Judges chapter 5, verse 19. So the king, as we read Judges 5, 19, the kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. Of course, to understand this psalm, you need to read the history of Israel in the book of Judges because he is making reference to many stories. If you don't know these stories, you, you will not understand what he is saying. Verse 10, second part, who became as refuse on the earth. Because they were not buried, so they lay unrotted on the earth. Their flesh manured the soil, as we read in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 37, and the corpus of Jezebel shall be as refuse to the surface of the field. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 17. This added actually to the defeat of the enemies of God. Verse 11. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmona. So he mentioned four names here in verse 11. I hope all these names will encourage you to go and read the book of Judges and 1st Samuel, 2nd Samuel to know the stories of all these people. Who are Urib and Zeb? They were leaders of Midianites as you read in Judges chapter 7 and they were taken prisoners and they were slain by the Ephraimites who pursued after Midian. The second Two names, Zeba and Zalmona, were the kings of Midian slain by Gideon himself, as you read in Judges chapter 8. So the prayer here is that the enemies who had conspired against the land of Israel might be utterly destroyed. Now we are done with the names. Verse 12, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a position. Let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a position. Who, who said? Who are they? This is not to be understood as Orib or Zeb or Zeba or Zalmona, but the enemies of God, all the enemies that were mentioned, who entered into conspiracy to destroy the nation of Israel, 
We are the pasture of God. That's why they said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God. Take them for a position. So God regard his children as his pastures. They won't take them as a position. They don't want only to possess the temple, which was the house of, of God, but they want to possess all the dwellings of Israel, where the Lord promised Israel to dwell and to live there. Let us take for ourselves the pasture of God for a position. Nearly the same words were spoken by the Alliance when they came to attack Jehoshaphat, as we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 11, to throw us out of your position, which you have given us to inherit. I told you these enemies are symbol of Satan. So Satan will not cease until he sets himself as a god in the heart of mankind. That's what he wants to achieve to have thrown in the hearts of the people. Israel faced the threats to her existence in the day of Judges, and God delivered them. An Asaph prayer reminded Israel of how God in the past rescued Israel. That's why they can trust him right now in the present crisis, as he delivered them in the past he can deliver them right now. Verse 13. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. So, from verse 13 to 15, we see a prayer for the dispersion and destruction of the enemy expressed by figures from nature like dust, whirlwind. The ultimate end and object of all is that they may acknowledge God to be supreme. And, and this will be very clear in verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. So, Asaph is not praying all this prayer again in the enemies to be utterly destroyed, or to revenge. No. He wanted them to return to God. He wanted them to repent. That is the ultimate goal, that they may acknowledge God to be supreme. So Asaph prayed to God that he would take these many enemies who are determined to destroy Israel and scatter them like chaff before the wind like chaff before the wind, and like whirling dust. So the prayer here is that they may be utterly destroyed or driven away, driven away like chaff or the dust. What is the whirling dust? Anything whirled away before the wind. Anything whirled away before the wind. It is the dust that is caught up by a whirlpool of wind and twisted round and around and driven away. In other translation, like wheel, which is very unstable. 
like a wheel when once tumbled down from the top of a hill runs with great force with great speed and it stays not till it comes to the bottom so now the enemies promise themselves a position take the inheritance of Israel to be their own so Asaf is praying let them like a wheel which is very unstable and soon removed which once you got tumbled down from the top of a hill it will run with great force and speed and will not stay till it comes to the bottom so the meaning here that they never to settle down never to have steady place to be always on the move St. Augustine says this not a wish but a prophecy what Asaf is saying here is a prophecy about what will happen to the enemies of God verse 14 as the fire burns the wood and as the flame sets the mountain on fire so God is like fire and they are like wood so as fire burns the wood and as the flame sets the mountains on fire so the psalmist refer to the manner of threshing in Judea which was generally performed on a mountain when the corn was thrashed by means of a wheel which ran over the stalks or the branches and trunks so the chaff after you know the wheel runs over the corn the chaff will be easily blown by the wind and what remains will be burned on the mountain that's why the psalmist concludes the description with this word as flame sets the mountain on a fire that is the remaining of the chaff so he prayed that they would be consumed like fire burns the wood because as if he is saying to God cause them to consume away and perish as a burning forest forest is burning or as blazing brushwood on a mountain side and according to St. Augustine the fire and the flame refer to God verdict of punishment on the wicked that's the flame and the fire and according to St. Jerome burn means to burn their pride to burn their pride or their head Satan to the Israelites who lived at that time there was nothing more powerful than the tempest or the storm so the psalmist prayed that God would not only defeat Israel enemies but to pursue them and frighten them with his great power as we read in verse 15 pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm so the Lord will follow up his enemies warn them pursue them till they are defeated and crushed he did this actually with his servant Jehoshaphat and in like manner he will come to rescue all his children from the enemies verse 16 
And about the destiny and the fate of wicked, the righteous Job says in Job 27, verse 20 and 21, terrors overtake him like a flood. Attempts steal him away in the night. The east wind carries him away and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. St. Jerome said about pursue them with your tempest. He did not say kill them, but pursue them to return back to you. He did not say kill them, but pursue them to return back to you. As he said in verse 16, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. So as if he's saying to God, discipline them. Not to destroy them utterly, but that they may return back to you. But those who reject you, then he made a prophecy, they will be destroyed utterly. Asaph ended the psalm with an unexpected turn, actually. After praying for the destruction of the enemies of God, he prayed that they would be thoroughly humbled fill their faces with shame, so they would be led to seek the Lord. He prayed for their disgraceful defeat in order to return to God. But this is only as means to a higher end, that they may seek your name, O Lord, and to submit themselves to the will of God. So Asaph had this deeper desire in his heart. The deeper desire they returned to God, more than the destruction of their enemies. He wished that they should be turned to God and become his friends and his children. So he wished for their chastisement as means to that end, to seek the name of God and to return back to him. So the goal of all this prayer is their salvation and not their perdition. St. Jerome says, fill their faces with shame and not with punishment. Why does not he seek their perdition? Why Asaph did not seek their perdition? The words of inspiration give the answer by saying that they may seek your name, O Lord. For once they seek the name of God, they will get it. Those who were deceived by the heretics they will return to God when God disciplined them. Verse 17, let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish. So verse 17 is expansion of the thought contained in verse 16. Fill their, their faces with shame. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish. So in case they do not return to God by repentance, in case they don't seek his name, they will perish. As I told you, this is a prophecy, not a wish. There will be nothing before them, those who do not repent and do not return to God, nothing will be before them except shame and everlasting contempt. Asaph recognized that not all of God's enemies 
would respond appropriately by repentance and faith. Not all of them will repent and return back to God. St. Jerome says, He who feels ashamed of his sins would be close to forgiveness. When we feel ashamed of our sins and develop godly sorrow, we will be close to forgiveness. St. Jerome also said, Note that destruction here doesn't mean perdition, but rather salvation. Who is to follow that they may know that you, God, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. That's the last verse 18. That they, your enemies, may know that you, O God, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So, they want them, the enemies, to follow God. St. Augustine says again, he returns to this last, who in the same company of enemies are to be made ashamed of this for this purpose. So he's praying that the enemies will be ashamed for the purpose they know God, that they may not be ashamed forever. If they ashamed here on earth and repented, they will not be ashamed forever. And for this purpose, to be destroyed through affliction as far as they are wicked, that they being made good and they may be found alive forever. So if their position and they uh, were destroyed and they are disciplined here, that they will be found alive forever. For having said of them, let be ashamed and perish, he innocently added that they may know you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high forever over all the earth. So the aim of the prayer in this psalm is that all people come to the belief in the true and only God. So this great humbling experience, let them be put to shame and perish, would lead them to submit to God who is the most high over all the earth. This son began with a plea that God would not remain silent, but end with the idea that God's fame and glory going out to all the earth, the most high over all the earth. St. John Chrysostom said, it's befitting for us to praise the Lord and to give him thanks for all his amazing works, not only when he saves us from evil, but also when he allows us to go through troubles and affliction, which we may count them as evil. Asaf recognized that ultimately every enemy of God will bow the knee in recognition of God's Lordship. They will acknowledge that God is the most high God, sovereign, Lord of all, above all gods and above all kings, above all that exalt themselves and pretend to be high. Everyone will recognize that God is so, not only over the land of Israel, but over all the earth. Asaph was confident in knowing that the Lord would have the last word. So Asaph 
confident that the last word in this world will be to God. All people would come to acknowledge his holy name, that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This concludes Psalm 83. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.